hysterical people. I'm so excited today to welcome Emily from Smishmortion 101. She has been a great advocate for abortion rights on the internet. And I, of course, have just kind of engaged with her by cross-promoting each other's posts, etc. on Instagram. So I'm really excited to welcome Emily to the podcast today. So welcome, Emily. Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I am very hysterical about all of this. So it's fitting. Yeah. Yes, 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 absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are hysterical and passionate about these topics? Well, I've been following abortion news and abortion rights for probably the better part of the last 13 years or so. One of the first people to be screaming about the war on women when they told us we were all just talking too much and needed to shut up. And sure enough, here we are. And I studied law. I work in business litigation. Uh, I formerly worked in sexual assault litigation and also like professional malpractice defense. Currently, I work in business litigation. So this isn't really my professional capacity within this niche. This is more of like me being a legal scholar who studies law constantly and wants to bring about the issues that we see when we look at this legislation that's passed and really like stop to think about what legal philosophy is going behind this? What are the constitutional questions? What are the human rights questions? What are the kinds of things that I would bring up if I was trying to argue this back to a court of law? Maybe someday, maybe not, but I want people to understand that it's a much more complex legal issue than what the pro-life movement likes to make it out to be. So that's kind of where I come in and I have a bunch of lengthy posts. If you like to read, you know, there's mom humor, litigation humor, all kinds of stuff within my page. And, you know, I just kind of try to be some of an influencer on this topic and, you know, shine some light on the legal complexities that most people don't understand. And I don't blame them because you kind of got to study law to understand it. And it's, it's complicated. All of it's, all of it's complicated. So that's where I want to come in. Well, great. Well, which is why we're very excited to have you here today because it is complicated. I mean, it's not just as easy as, oh, overturn Roe v. Wade and then let the states decide, because what does that mean? So many, you know, obviously different states are different colors and have different legislation, but even within the states, the laws are very confusing. There's been a lot of confusion out there both before and after Dobbs. From a more scholarly professional perspective and just somebody who does like to fight things out in court, I can appreciate it to an extent. The kinds of strategy that both sides will take on this issue when they go try to challenge things in court. So I've been watching, you know, the Center for Reproductive Rights, you know, I read their complaints or I read the answers to those complaints or the ACLU and try to track not just that they're fighting it, because obviously we need people boots on the ground, the legal advocates to just go to the courtroom and duke it out. Like that's what litigants do is that they're they're the fight club of the law. Right. But we also need to pay really close attention to how they are fighting the strategy that they're taking when they're fighting it. Because Dobbs, even though I detest the decision, that was a heartbreaking day. And this isn't something that we 
should have ever really had to deal with. Dobbs did nonetheless give us an opportunity to strengthen abortion rights because it didn't make any decisions about abortion itself. Like it didn't say this is illegal. Abortion itself is unconstitutional. We can't allow this. It's banned. It goes against federal law if there are states that still permit abortion. It said nothing like that. It didn't go into fetal personhood. It didn't go into any of those things. In fact, the court has declined to hear cases about fetal personhood because they know how complicated that becomes. So all they did is it was kind of a hands-off cop out. We're just going to let the states decide. We're just going to give it back to you. You can experiment with the precedent. You can see what works. You can see what doesn't. And abortion has won on every ballot measure to date when it has been up to the states. And it has it is actually giving us a really good opportunity, despite the states that are going haywire and going crazy with their bans, it is giving other states and eventually I think the union as a whole an avenue to really seal abortion rights airtight within both state constitutions and then later the federal constitution. For a long time, I was very opposed to abortion rights going back to the voters because I'm like, you don't vote on human rights. In principle, that's horrible to do. We can't vote on human rights. Or going back to the states, I felt that was the same kind of thing. I'm like, these are human rights. We can't leave that up to popular opinion. But now that we're forced to put it in popular opinion, it's like, well, if this is what we've got to do, this is what we've got to do. It works to our advantage. Let's do it. And so we have to pay attention to the way that they are fighting it, what precedent that's being established, because Roe said it's itself up for failure. I'm a huge critic of the Roe decision. Not that I'm against abortion rights by any means. I'm fully happy with what it did for American women at the time. But the strategy that they used to create the right to an abortion, because it's a derivative of other rights, was not the strongest avenue they could have taken. It was just the most straightforward one at the time because the court was being very consistent on privacy precedent. But it did not withstand time. And because it became a constitutional right, states went, I don't have to pass protections. The federal government went, we don't have to pass any federal protections. There are so many Republicans who are pro-choice. And I've talked to many of them who said, we didn't think Roe was going anywhere. We took that for granted. We thought we'd get all everything else we wanted out of the Republican Party, and they were just going to squeal about abortion on the sidelines, but not actually be able to do anything about it. And they did. And so that's where I'm like, no, next time we get it, because there will be a next time. I'm confident that Dobbs, the way Dobbs set itself up, I'm like, it set itself up more for failure than Roe even did. We will get it back. I don't know when. I don't know exactly how. I don't know what case will make it or what won't or the different avenues we take. But there is a big opportunity with Dobbs to actually make a bigger stronghold for abortion rights out of the decision that our lovely SCOTUS, I say that sarcastically, passed down. I love your optimism. I'm not an optimist by any means. I try not to be a total cynist, but in this regard, it's something that I just kind of like feel in my bones. And we can see the rest of the world, you know, France is trying to add it to their constitution. Mexico, of all places, decriminalized it despite being staunchly opposed. I mean, you can see the rest of the world going, let's not be America because this is crazy. I hope they learn from us. I mean, you know, silver lining, right? At least somebody can protect their pregnant people in their countries. But it's exhausting. And when I see the stuff crop up, you know, the new laws that are trying to be passed and everything else, it's nonetheless disheartening. I can't say I'm an optimist all the time. But like at the end of the day, I'm like, no, I don't know when it'll be it could be my lifetime I don't know but it will come back like we will get it back like that's the trajectory 
the only trajectory that I see it going unless we have like a total fascist authoritarian takeover or something like that. You know, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> also is something I'm worried about, but yeah, that's a different podcast episode, I suppose. Well, no, that's great. And I agree with you that obviously when abortion is on the ballot in, in some form or another, you know, the voters want it. But yeah. there's these states, these legislatures that feel like maybe this is the beginning of the fascism that we're talking about. Like oh, yeah. they are just going to say, screw you voters, you know, we're going to say, forget about it. So yeah. let's talk about, I mean, Ohio just codified abortion rights in their constitution, uh-huh. but like, there's some threats by the legislation to just say, no, we're not going to listen. Yeah, they're, they're threats and they're, they're definitely going to try. Like it's Newton's third law of motion that with every act of force, there's an equal and opposite counterforce. So every punch we throw, we're going to get a punch back, but how hard is that punch going to be? Right. And you know, how much weight is going to be behind it in that simple, I'm just not going to follow this constitutional amendment that got added. There's no weight behind that. I mean, unless they follow some variation of like the independent legislator theory that SCOTUS already struck down surprisingly, but that the state legislator can just act independently of the other checks and balances that are in place is so antithetical to everything about our country, both at the state and the federal level. So when we talk about precedent and we talk about super precedent, I don't think there's anything more super precedent than the idea of checks and balances within our country. We have three branches of government. We have the state governments. We have the courts that hear constitutional questions. We have the legislator that passes these laws. They have to be signed by the governor who can veto it. They can override veto. There's constant checks and balances with everything that no one branch of the government, whether it's state or federal, can just say, we're not going to follow something that's in the constitution just because we say so. There is value to judicial stripping to an extent because the court can't be the end-all be-all either. It needs to have a check on it as well, right? Because you could have a SCOTUS like we do now and you're just like, I don't trust them. So if it gets to the end of the road, I have no faith they're going to do anything that we want them to do. So there there does have to be some checks on the judicial system. So judicial stripping does have its uses. It does have its purpose. But when you pull from the court the very thing that the court is for, which is to answer constitutional questions, these federal constitutional questions questions or state constitutional questions, that is the court's domain. So they're they're still going to impose an abortion ban, let's say. They're still going to write in an abortion ban, pass it because they have overwhelming numbers in their Republican legislator, right? And they go to try to enforce it. All we need to do is just sue them over it. They can't just say, we're going to ignore this lawsuit. It goes against the constitutional amendment that we just passed that's very clear that says that this is not constitutional. And the legislator can't just come back and say, no, but we say it is constitutional. What is the point? of the Constitution if the legislator can just write whatever they want and call it constitutional. The Constitution is the parameters. It's the anchor to what you have to follow when you make law. Like, you know, I was talking to a bunch of my colleagues about this. And it just blows our minds that they think that they can write policy and use it to redline the Constitution instead of redlining their policy so that it adheres to the Constitution. Like, it's so antithetical to the way we do anything that even if it were to go all the way up to the Supreme Court, I highly doubt, given how much power that those guys want up there, that even they would strip their own authority over constitutional questions, because that would be the ultimate issue of the case is whether or not the legislator can override a court's dominion over a constitutional question. And if that goes up to the Supreme Court, even they are going to go, no, that's up to us. You can't take our authority away over that. Like that would sabotage so many of the other plans that they have. You know, if you've looked into Project 2025, a robust executive 
branch. They also want a juristocracy. Trump was able to put in over 300 appointments between attorney generals and judges on all the circuit levels and stuff like that. He was able to make about 300 appointments, give or take. Biden has only been able to make about 150 so far in his one term. You know, he's got another year left, but still. And you can see that, like, even in Idaho, the Ninth Circuit that made that decision about how they could still enforce their abortion ban even in life of the mother situations. That was three Trump-appointed judges on the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit is a notoriously liberal one. When something like that comes out of the Ninth Circuit, my heart stopped and I went, who made that decision? Because if these are the judges that, like, I would have faith in as being, you know, either centrist or lean liberal or, you know, just moderate in general, why on earth would they decide this, right? Like, this is scary if we have centrist judges or even liberal judges going with these abortion bans. When I looked it up and saw it was three Trump-appointed judges, I went, of course it is. Because even back in the Bush administration, they vowed to only appoint judges from the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society is a fringe supplemental society that has an illegitimate ideology when it comes to law. It doesn't mean there's no merit to their legal ideology. It's just not our law. It would almost be like arguing with somebody from a different country about their law, and they're telling you that's how you need to run things here. It's a club on every college campus, the Federalist Society that you join. It's the far right-wing fringe. And starting with the Bush administration, they were like, no, we're just going to appoint from the Federalist Society. And so Trump was spoon-fed radical judges to fill the judiciary. And we see like the Mifepristone case. We see all of these things that are ascending into higher courts. And we can see the decisions that they're making because of who they appointed. And so it's rather terrifying to me because it's going to be such an uphill battle when we go to argue these cases that every time a new case gets filed, I get my hopes up like, yeah, they're fighting. And then I go, who are they fighting? Who's the judge? Who's deciding this? Who's, you know? Yeah, never before in my lifetime have I heard the qualifier for when they talk about judges on TV. Honestly, they probably haven't talked about judges on TV as much as they do now. But when they do, they usually qualify it as a Trump appointed judge, a Biden appointed judge, a Obama appointed judge. And unfortunately, that's good information for me to take in because then you know that there's this bias, which is so tragic because the whole point of the judiciary was to be blind and, you know, have no bias when you're going in. Yeah. People are inevitably going to lean one way or the other. I don't really have a qualm with that. You know, like you have RBG, who's, you know, my hero, but, you know, she obviously leans left. But to analyze each case, not on the basis of your political beliefs, but on the merits of the case is essential to any federal appointment for a judge. I mean, they did, they played a bunch of games when Scalia died and they wouldn't let Obama appoint Garland, right? And then he got to appoint Gorsuch. And then when RBG died, they backpedaled and said that we couldn't wait until the next administration. Trump could replace her just weeks before the election, right, with Barrett. And then they expanded that nuclear rule. The Supreme Court used to require 60 votes. And a lot of conservatives have jumped down my throat and said, well, Garland didn't get 60 votes. I said they never voted on Garland. We don't know if he got 60 votes. Democrats had switched it to a simple majority for everything but the Supreme Court because Republicans were blocking all of Obama's appointments. And the Republicans expanded that to include SCOTUS. And so these judges that are sitting on the bench only got in by a hair. Whereas like even RBG got 93 votes in the Senate, you know, despite being left leaning, like that's what you want. You want that bipartisan support and people need to set their political convictions aside to have centrist judges. You know, Sandra Day O'Connor recently died. And despite her major convictions about abortion, that pro-lifers will say she was evil and she supported abortion. I'm like she did not, but 
but she understood the legal complexity of it and she voted to protect it as a legal principle. And that's the kind of thing we need. We don't need people's religious convictions and their political ideologies spilling over into law. It's so frustrating to me how much they got away with under Trump's administration in terms of how they massacred the judiciary. And that was the number one thing I warned people about at the time when they didn't want to vote for HRC. Is I said, think about the judiciary. And they're like, the judiciary. I'm like, the judiciary. Like, you do not understand the damage that that can cause. And here we go. They've seen it now. Yeah. My dad was a lawyer and he said the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. I am a little bit skeptical that this SCOTUS is going to do anything to help us with abortion rights. It's the Congress we have to get. Yeah. So in terms of this SCOTUS, like, I mean, I listen to strict scrutiny podcasts. I try to follow their decisions and stuff. They're fascinating to me. Like, I don't know who's all lining their pockets. You know, someone's lining their pockets. They've got all these ethics issues cropping up, right? Which, by the way, the ethics code that they put in, there's no method of enforcement for or anything. It's bogus. But following some of the decisions that they make, I'm paying really close attention to the kind of precedent they're trying to set, even within cases that kind of seem unrelated. That's what what we use. We'll use bits and pieces of precedent from things that like somebody would say, oh, that just seems unrelated. It's like, that's because it goes back to a legal principle that we're trying to keep consistent or established here. Like, it's hard for me to say what SCOTUS will do as these decisions ascend, if they'll even accept them to listen to them, or if they'll let them die in their district court, or if they're going to use it as an opportunity to lock down abortion bans even further. And based on what they went into with Dobbs, Dobbs was so much fluff. It was history and tradition precedent, which is really weak. And it was designed to dismantle privacy rights predominantly, more so than abortion. It was designed to dismantle privacy rights. And you could see that in like Thomas's concurring opinion about how he wanted to go after birth control. He wanted to go after gay marriage, obviously not interracial marriage because he's in an interracial marriage, but you know, things don't apply to them. They only apply to everybody else. Then you had Kavanaugh's concurring opinion where he kind of just said, that's all folks. This is all we want to hear on abortion. We're just throwing it back to the states, like stop putting pressure on us to do more. Because I think even those judges, I went to a conservative religious law school and I I sat in on a seminar about Dobbs before it went to the Supreme Court and how it was designed to target Roe. They didn't ask for Roe to be overturned within that. That was kind of an after the fact, you know, instead of going back and forth about this 15 week ban in Mississippi, like, why don't we just overturn Roe? And then they took the opportunity to do that, right? But if they hadn't done it in Mississippi, they probably would have done it because SB8 from Texas was going up. Oh, yeah. They were planting avenues for it to get to the Supreme Court for a while. And that's why had been following it for so long because I was like, these laws, they were dying in state legislatures, you know, when when they would crop up. And I remember really early on in my relationship with my husband, and as he hear me rant about, it's like, oh, that guy who compared us to cows in Georgia, and this was back in like 2012 or whatever, and their bans, and they didn't go anywhere. They didn't get implemented. So they couldn't get up to the Supreme Court. When they got actually passed and implemented, despite the law of the land still being Roe at the time, because SB8 went into effect before Roe fell. The one in Oklahoma went into effect before Roe fell. And those were a reach because they were not even just first trimester bans. They were like, before you even know your pregnant bans. And Roe is very clear that you have a steadfast right in the first trimester, especially. There can be some limitations in the second. And then in the third, it's usually narrowed down to like life or health of the mother situations, right? They set up that three-tier structure.
structure within Roe, which yeah. I have some issues with because, you know, the longer you stay pregnant, the more rights you lose, right? Which to a degree makes some logical sense because I base the foundation for abortion rights in the right to self-defense, the right to self-preserve. So if an abortion becomes akin to giving birth because you're so far along and assuming everything's healthy, you're not running into any major complications or whatever. It's like, why would you go through a three-day DNA procedure as opposed to giving birth? If your body has already incurred all of the damage, where's your right to self-defense at that point? You're going to be incurring it anyway. Like the premise of the right to self-defense is you can use lethal force against somebody who's harming you if that is the force necessary to stop the harm. You know, if somebody comes up and punches you in the face and walks away, you can't go walk back up to them and punch them in the face and say that was in self-defense. It needs to be something that actually stops what's going to happen. So if you reach a point in pregnancy in which an abortion isn't going to stop what's happening to your body, and again, assuming everything is healthy and safe and whatnot, there is a lot weaker of a claim to make for self-defense when you're in the late, sta late, late, late stages of like third trimester, right? But when we look at the practicality of it, when we look at the numbers, what people actually do, the vast, vast, vast majority get them in the first trimester. The majority of those, it's so early they can use mifepristone and, you know, it's just pregnancy tissue, right? And then you have some in the second trimester, usually because people who are blocked from access within the first trimester or something changed. And then you have less than 1% happening in the last half, which is half of the second trimester and all of the third trimester is less than 1%. And that accounts for all of the medical complications. So do we know how many are truly elective at that point? We don't have any real numbers on that. We can kind of make an inference if you broke it out by weeks or whatever, you'd have a fraction of a fraction of a percent of truly elective abortions happening that late in the game that it is not worth, you know, if we're looking from more of a greater good point of view, it is not worth jeopardizing that window of time when people experience the most debilitating and lethal pregnancy complications from receiving the care that they need, because that's a lot more women than the number of babies being aborted and dismembered at nine months, right? Which is just not happening. But they use that. They fear monger that. You hear them say like, oh, do you think it should be able to abort halfway out of the birth canal? And it's like, well, no, you can't. It's not possible. Like and I brought up to somebody, I was like, you, you wouldn't insert a catheter for somebody who's already urinating, would you? Why would you do an abortion for somebody who's already birthing? Like, it just doesn't make any yeah. sense. Nobody would ever do that. It's wild to me the kinds of things that they fear monger related to abortion. And there's so much dishonesty surrounding the pro-life anti-choice movement. And going back to the justices, I think they know how complicated deciding something like fetal personhood would be. I think they know that whatever they decide can continue to be challenged. There's no way for them to just say, this is the way it needs to be. We can ban abortion. There's no legal or moral issues surrounding the act of actually banning abortion, they know it's more complicated. Anybody who has studied the law, anybody who has studied our constitution, or even just philosophy in general, when you talk about personhood and agency and stuff, would know that this is a much deeper and more complicated issue than six out of nine or five out of nine or whatever justices on the Supreme Court could come to a consensus on. And so whatever they decide, they know can be challenged. And one of the things, even though I wouldn't argue for fetal personhood, if we were to get a decision that involves establishing fetal personhood, I think we can work with it and actually use it to our advantage in a lot of ways. So like I'm a trial strategist, so I'm constantly flipping strategy when I catch wind or get an idea of what the other side is trying to do. And so I'm kind of trained to be like, what opportunities can I 
take out of something like that happening. And so I'm in really, really, really early stages of writing a book right now about fetal personhood and how if that is in the future down the line, we have an avenue to use that ultimately to our advantage. Not that I want to necessarily see that happen. It gets mucky. It gets complicated. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage involved with it. But there's things that we can work with that I would be willing to put on the boxing gloves for like if I had to, you know what I mean? Like I, I want to be equipped to fight that battle if we end up needing to fight that battle instead of just saying, no, it's not a person. It's not a person. It's not a person. It's a clump of cells. It's a this, it's a that. And hinging on that being the foundation, I'm like, how are we going to handle it if it's not? And this is how I think we should handle it. And so that's kind of what the book I'm putting together goes into in that regard. I think one of the reasons why they declined hearing a case on fetal personhood was for a lot of those same reasons. Because, you know, no two people can have the same rights to one body, right? Mm -hmm. Just to put it really simply. So even if you call it a person, to what extent is it permissible to use another person? So does the fetal person have more rights than the human person? Yeah, essentially is what they're trying to establish is that they have more rights than born people. And they say that they're trying to give them equal rights. I'm like, you can't give them equal rights. No two people can have equal rights to the same body. That's just impossible. You're trying to give them more of a privilege based on their state of existence by discriminating against another person based on their inherent traits being a woman and their state of existence being pregnant, right? So in the name of not discriminating against people based on their state of existence, which is what they'll use to try to justify fetal personhood rights, you are now discriminating against another person based on their state of existence. So it just, it conflicts each other. It's two sides of the coin, you know, like there will always be a battle against that. And I don't think this court even wanted to go into that. I think that was overwhelming for them to decide. They didn't know what kind of can of worms. So they were like, let's let the states open the can of worms. Let's let them handle the shit show that happens from all of this. And we'll kind of see what precedent sticks and what precedent doesn't. So right now they're just throwing things at the wall and just seeing what sticks. And it's our job to be like, let's try to make sure nothing does. Or if it does, let's see if we can work with it. You know, I think the ballot measures are actually really, really going to be our key to success. Like the state constitution. The state ballot measures, yeah. yeah. I'm excited about those. Yeah. Considering they've won in really, really red states, I'm very excited about those. Yeah. But between the ballot measures and the lawsuits, so like we have Zorowski, right? And we have other lawsuits in Oklahoma and Tennessee and Idaho and stuff like that that are all being filed under the same thing. Because life of the mother, health of the mother exceptions aren't actually playing out the way they make you think that they're going to play out because they just say, oh yeah, you can do it if her life is at stake, but what does that even mean? What process does that entail? Do you have to go to a judge every time, like this new one that just got filed? Like, what does that mean, right? And so they're just trying to get answers on what that means. But the more you try to fish for those answers on what that means, the more their whole argument and their laws just start to fall apart altogether. And so I think challenging those in court is really beneficial. But the state ballot measures to get it within the Constitution and in all of the states that allow for that, because not every state has a process for that, I see it as layering it. You know, you layer the states with their own reproductive rights protections. You get a case to come up to district courts, circuit courts that'll create district protections, precedent and stuff established. Maybe that gets up to the Supreme Court. Hopefully, if Thomas is gone or, you know, Alito, Alito. by Alito, you know, Sammy 
go away. I go just away. like maybe one of them will be gone and we'll get we'll have a chance, you know, hopefully two. But like even if just one is gone, we'd have somewhat of a chance to re-argue Roe, but not under the same framework as Roe, right? Not with privacy, but with more about bodily autonomy, mainly. More about bodily autonomy. You know, there's the McFall v. Shimp, which is a bodily autonomy case that gets referred to a lot. That goes in line with, like, the violinist, if you've heard that. There's a philosophical thought experiment around abortion called the violinist. That's essentially like, okay, if you kidnap the violinist and, you know, you needed to use their organs to keep somebody else alive, should you be able to force them to kind of thing, even if the other person were to die? It's one of those setups, and, and McFall v. Shimp was not about abortion, but it was about a guy who needed bone marrow transfusions and he couldn't find any matches. He found somebody within his family who was a match and asked them and they said no. And he tried to petition the court to make them donate their bone marrow. And the court said, even though this isn't a decision I would make for my family member, you know, I don't understand all of the complexities here. We cannot sink our teeth into other individuals and call that maintaining the right to life. You know what I mean? Like it, it basically set the stage that yes, autonomy and the right to life are on equal footing. And they're not even diametrically opposed at all unless you're talking about separate people. Like your your right to autonomy is your right to bodily integrity, your right to make decisions about your own body, the right to decide what other people do to your body. That's your bodily integrity. And your right to life is your right to self-preserve. Both rights are the right to self-preserve. They're not diametrically opposed at all. One is more explicit in that the government isn't allowed to kill you. That's the right to life is that the government is not allowed to kill you. But other people are allowed to kill you depending on what you're doing to them. You know, like if I go up to somebody and I've got a knife and I'm going to go after them, they have a right to kill me. The government doesn't necessarily, unless they're also in that same situation, say I'm doing that to a police officer or something, right? But people really misconstrue what the right to life even is. And it's the right to self-preserve. It's it's the right to protect yourself, not your obligation to protect other people. Now, you might have a moral issue with not protecting certain people, you know, so you might think everybody should be obligated to protect their children, regardless of what stage of life they're in and all this stuff. Those are moral questions, sure. But McFall v. Shane went into like we can't mandate that as a governmental body and force somebody to go through with that against their will regardless of whether or not it saves this other person's life and that's more from the bodily autonomy perspective but also i mean there's there's considerations in terms of involuntary servitude i mean it's bodily labor it's involuntary labor and all the 13th amendment says is that involuntary servitude shall not exist within any jurisdiction of the United States. It doesn't say only certain people. It doesn't say what kind of labor. It doesn't say anything like that. And I can't think of more invasive labor than pregnancy or childbirth. You know, I've been there. I've done that. And it's not a walk in the park. It's not the inconvenience they make it out to be. And I would never dream of forcing that on anybody. I think it goes against the idea that adoption is the alternative option. Adoption is a solution for parenting. It is not a solution for pregnancy. And so, yes, that might fly if somebody wants to bring this child into the world but doesn't want to raise them that would be a valid option but that doesn't do anything for somebody who doesn't want to go through with a pregnancy you know i've heard their moral arguments i've dissected those and everything but they're all just moral arguments if you look at this from the ethical perspective if you look at this from what the government should or shouldn't be able to do the only question i ever ask is what about the government gives them the authority to make this decision 
are they doctors? No. Do they understand pregnancy? No. Do they know these people personally? Do they have any stakes in their decisions? No. They have no qualifications whatsoever to make these decisions for other people. Now, they might be able to police a decision that's already been made. Like, say a male partner doesn't want his girlfriend or wife or whatever to have a baby, so he takes a coat hanger to her in the living room against her will or something like that. Yes, that's highly criminal. That would be terrible. He forced her to undergo an abortion that was highly unsafe, you know, unduly endangered her. That was battery. That was assault. That was everything, right? Mm -hmm. You can police that kind of decision that's made. But in terms of your own, like, personal agency over what you yourself are willing to go through, that's not something that the government has any discretion in. Not inherently. You can give them the authority, but you have no baseline for why they should even have it. And I've never gotten an answer to that question as to why they should have that authority. Like this new one that just got filed, the emergency one, I think the judge is going to get that on their desk and just go, oh my God, like I have somebody's life in my hands. And if I make the wrong decision, they could be seriously injured, maimed, or even dead because of my decision. And I think even a lot of judges didn't realize the kinds of decisions that they were going to have to make for other people in this regard. They just took for granted that, oh, the vast majority of abortions are elective. Therefore, no reason. We just want to stop those. Like, but what about all of these other ones that you now have to make agency decisions for that are beyond what you should feel comfortable making? All of these medical complication ones seem complicated and obviously go against what their easy solution was. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on all the rape and incest stuff. I guess it's easier to prove incest, but rape, I mean, I think to have to force these women and girls, they have to prove a rape just so that they can get an abortion is like putting them through this horrible situation, this yeah. time clock, you know, hanging over their head. So they're not going to, they're just going to go through with the pregnancy. So I've worked in sexual assault litigation, my firm had a whole practice area for it, focused on child sexual abuse. And it's so complicated the way people process their own abuse. And, you know, you, like there were clients that could not bring themselves to even report their abuse because they were so attached to the person that abused them, you know, and, and it was just this really messed up yeah. and it's so distorted and it's heartbreaking because like so many people were groomed and there were, you know, girls that are just really young that even their mothers were, you know, grooming them to be like, you know, you need to be subservient to men and blah, blah, blah. Like that's just how they were wired. That's how that they were raised to believe. So they didn't understand that even anything wrong was happening to them. And there was just so many times that I was just like, I have to put these journals and these testimonies down because I can't even, we got a whole team dedicated to it finally. And I was just like, okay, you know, as much as I really want to help with this, it's, it's incredibly triggering for me. But yeah. in terms of pregnancy, it really worries me because you're going to have most people, they're either going to get pressure from their abuser not to report it, or they're going to report it and then just get nothing but hostility from law enforcement about it. Assault victims do not get treated well. They get treated worse than the suspects do like nobody looks at a rape suspect and goes automatically assumes they do it they'll say you were accused of this blah 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 but like they don't automatically assume they do it but they will look at an assault victim and jump to the conclusion that well maybe they're lying well what were they wearing what were they wearing or like it, was it really or did you just you know decide halfway through you didn't want to do it anymore or like did, are you just trying yeah. to like get back at him for something like all kinds of stuff they come up with it's so gross yeah. but in terms of rape and incest exceptions in general you don't hate me too much but I kind of align with their ideology that the means of conception do not necessarily dictate the value of the embryo or the fetus themselves like I think you should be able to abort for any reason you want to just like I'll put that out there you 
could be a millionaire, but you don't want to go through pregnancy, I'd be like, don't go through pregnancy. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's up to you. But in terms of making the inference that this embryo or this fetus is less valuable because they were conceived via rape. I mean, we have a lot of people in the world who were conceived via rape and it's insulting to them to hear that like, oh, I'm lesser in value because of the means of my conception. I'm like, if your mother chose to have you, despite what happened to her, if she genuinely chose to have you, I wholeheartedly support her decision to do that. So no, I don't think you yourself are any less valuable. I don't necessarily think that fetal life is any less valuable. So I understand that concept that they come from when they say we don't want rape or incest exceptions. The problem for me is it's just like, I don't really care the means of conception one way or the other. I think you should be able to abort no matter what. So them adding in rape and incest exceptions, I mean, I have a post on this on my page that kind of goes into how that's based more in this idea of perfect victimhood than it is in personhood and how they'll claim to have all kinds of sympathy for the assault victim, right? Oh, it's so horrible what happened to you. I'm so sorry, you know, but you can't kill that baby, right? That makes you the monster. And now this pregnancy is separate from your assault. You are now victimizing the fetus. Right. Instead of becoming a victim, you're now a perpetrator. Exactly. And so some people process it and they say, go, you're no longer a victim in my eyes anymore because you want to do this. So I see you as a perpetrator. I see you as evil and I want to stop you from doing it. Other people process it as I feel really bad what happened to you. It's really hard to punish somebody for a choice they didn't make. If you think about if your child came home late one night, cops brought them home because they got into some trouble, but it wasn't really their decision to get into that trouble. They got looped into something. They didn't know what was happening. If you're sitting down as a parent and you're going, I feel really bad punishing you for this if this isn't something that you even had any control over. Like it's harder to do that. You know what I mean? When you can't pinpoint some sort of point of liability for them or some decision that they made, it's really hard to then be the abuser and be the one inflicting that kind of pain of the pregnancy onto them. So those are the people that are more inclined to have rape or incest exceptions built in, whether or not they're just a PR scheme or they're actually genuine, I don't want rape victims to have to go through with this. They become a perfect victim of pregnancy, no longer of rape, but of pregnancy because they didn't choose to have intercourse. So now they're like a victim of this thing that happened to them and now they can act in their own self-defense and they find that permissible. But when we think about the actual logistics of it as like, you have to report it first. What if it doesn't get substantiated? What if they don't believe you? How long does that take? And then you're outside the window. That's past the point of being able to get it done. It ultimately doesn't even matter. They make so many hurdles for it that they say like, yeah, we're giving, we're throwing you this bone. We're making this exception for you, but it's not actually going to work in practice or it will only work for a very small amount of cases. I imagine it's probably very rare that it actually officially works an exception gets allowed. I've seen the meme basically saying that if from a man's perspective, if you want to have a baby that you like should just rape people. I mean, it was like so insane. Men can choose the mothers of their children, but women can't choose to be mothers. And we've seen a huge uptick in domestic violence calls. It's doubled of reproductive coercion because most rapists are not the guy in the alley on the street it's most often a family member or a friend or a partner or you know whatever else even with all of the sexual litigation cases and stuff i can't name one that was a complete stranger they were all people that were tied to the victim in some way shape or form they knew them somehow yeah Wow. Yeah. So like, you know, you have the governor of Texas going, we're going to do everything we can to get rapists off the street. I'm like, they're not on the street. They are in their homes. And so you can't get them out of their homes 
And what are you going to do? You're not actually addressing any of this problem at all. Yeah. That little girl in Mississippi that started middle school as a mom because she was raped really broke my heart. I was yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, she did. That was recent. And then, the, of course, the one from Ohio, she did get an abortion, but she had to go to Indiana. Indiana. And they still went after the doctor for it and fined right. her and everything. It's insane. Oh, my God. It's insane. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you gave me a little hope. I'm glad that we have people like you out there who are... <laughs> fighting the good fight for us and obviously the rest of us are going to be fighting too at the ballot box and in other ways please 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 vote anything else you want to suggest people can do with besides get a law degree (laughs) i don't know if i recommend getting a law degree i went into it because i knew i really loved it and i know so many people who absolutely regret it but like i would pay attention to the news that crops up vote whenever it's you know on the ballot i love seeing these women run for office especially like ali phillips in tennessee through the horror show she went through i was messaging her and she had a her daughter i think around the same time i had my son like same year or the same age and everything and i was just like oh it hits people differently when you're like that could have been me you know i could have easily gone through something like that i just finished it so i've been recommending it eve by kat bohannon which is a evolutionary perspective on the female body in general but it focuses on childbearing and milk production and sex and all kinds of things from an evolutionary perspective to really shine light on how imperfect of a process pregnancy is and how it's evolved over time and just basically sealed my opinion that you can't make a perfect duty out of an imperfect process. You know, you can't make some perfect legal duty that you can punish people for out of a process that's inherently flawed. There aren't very many hypotheticals that would change my opinion on abortion, but if it were to like not cause any damage to the body at all, like if we laid eggs or something like that and we could just let them hatch, I would probably be opposed to like smashing the eggs, right? But, you know, like there's various different things that after reading this book, I'm like, that might change my opinion on abortion if that were the way we actually gestated, right? But because we we have one of the most aggressive gestational processes of any mammalian species, I'm like, that just seals my opinion that we can't be forcing it. We can't be policing it. We can't be, we can't be doing this. We just can't be doing this. Like every time I see a thing, my first thing is like, they can't do this. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) like, it fires me up. And then, you know, I have to cycle through, go back through the rabbit hole and then try to find that optimism again and try to hold on to that. Well, we're going to have our listeners just have to put this podcast episode on repeat in order to find that optimism. Yeah. Or you follow me on Instagram. Uh, I used to be on TikTok more, but I'm mainly on Instagram now. I try to post the legal content, you know, analysis and stuff like that, just to, you know, keep some spirits up. I try not to be too pessimistic about it. I try to end on a somewhat optimistic note. Or, well, you yeah. have that kind of cheeky attitude, which I think was what fired me up. And I love that you are on top of all the issues as well. So definitely follow Smish Morton 101. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link in the episode notes so you can find the link there to her Instagram. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. I was really glad to be here. Um, we maybe have to have a part two episode, like when we have some big victory, we can celebrate. Yeah. Next time there's something, we definitely need a part two episode just to kind of piggyback off of that optimism and be like, see, we did it. <laughs> On the right track. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. Keep doing the good fight. We love uh, folks like you out there with all your energy and I don't know where you find it, but we're glad. This is one of the few things that I can actually harness energy. Most of the time I'm like a dead sloth. So like (laughs) work drains it and then I have to, you know, fire myself up again with my feminist rage. And then I 
I'll get there. So great. We all got it. All right. Thank you again. I appreciate you so much for joining this very exciting and very informative conversation. It's really, really helpful. So much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Stay hysterical, everybody. We are the universe. So beautiful. the world.